It's Dr. Ken Gilman here, and today I'm going to talk about serotonin toxicity. This talk is aimed mainly at medical professionals, uh, but I'll try and phrase it so that well-informed non-medical people can understand a large proportion of I played a significant part in trying to establish in the literature that we called this condition serotonin toxicity, not serotonin syndrome. We have at least partially prevailed in that endeavour, but unfortunately there are still a lot of people who don't really understand what it's all about and the fact that it isn't a syndrome at all. I work with toxicologists quite a lot. In my research, I mean, I don't mean in clinical practice. And they refer to things called toxidromes, i.e. an amalgam of toxi and syndrome, toxidrome. And there are clearly certain drugs that have relatively specific and discrete effects, which produce a very characteristic picture when people take them and become toxic because of that. And they're very recognisable and recognising them is important when people are severely ill in intensive care units because it helps you to decide on the appropriate antidote. So for instance the anti-muscarinic toxidrome, which is very common, lots of plants produce potent atropine-like alkaloids. Belladonna being the most famous of all. Do you know why Belladonna is called Belladonna? Belladonna, Italian, Latin, beautiful lady. Back in the Middle Ages, they used to touch their eyes with tincture of Belladonna, which made their eyes dilate. And generally speaking, people with dilated eyes look more interested and alert and attractive. So the ladies made themselves more attractive and it became called Belladonna. So that's a very characteristic syndrome and of course it's important to know what it is and to give the appropriate anecdote which might be an anticholinesterase drug like physostigmine which can reverse the dramatic delirium that's produced by atropine-like drugs almost on the end of a needle. Okay, so that's a toxidrome. Now, that is very important because what seems to me to be the case with this toxidrome is that people are confusing non-problematic or non-dangerous side effects of medications with what might be a fatal toxidrome. Now that's a major error in terms of clinical management because what it's leading to is people getting very concerned uh, and worried and putting people in hospital and engaging in unnecessary die of serotonin toxicity. And with a great many, in fact almost all, of the reports, case reports I mean by that, most of the literature on serotonin toxicity is case reports. And these are reports of drugs that are not going to do anybody any serious harm 
shouldn't put them into an intensive care unit and almost certainly will never cause any serious morbidity or mortality. So it is very important to distinguish between what's toxic and what's just a side effect. This talk, I guess, needs to what needs, certainly will benefit by being taken in the context of the introductory note that I've written on the website uh, for anyone who isn't familiar with my work and my website. Um, a good section of the website is about serotonin toxicity because I'm a world expert in that field. And it's a very important thing to understand. If you understand serotonin toxicity, you understand most of psychopharmacology and drug interactions. So it's a very useful teaching exercise to uh, help people to understand serotonin toxicity properly. So that is a big part of my website. And the introductory note contains a couple of diagrams, which I think are very, very useful. Uh, if you scroll down to the bottom of the introductory note, it's relatively long, and that's because most reasonably complex topics can't be summarised on the back of a postage stamp. But if you scroll down to the bottom, you'll see a couple of diagrams. Uh, one is the serotonin toxicity triangle, and I think the second one underneath that is the bar graph of the relative degrees of, excuse me, the relative degrees of serotonin toxicity uh, caused by different drugs and combinations of drugs, uh, both in overdose uh, and uh, by themselves. And it's very important to understand those diagrams. And I suggest you might like to have a copy of those diagrams in front of you as you're listening to me talk. So the emphasis is that it's a dose-related phenomenon, it's specific. Vitamin C can't cause serotonin, can't cause strychnine poisoning, and only a drug with potent serotonin-elevating effects can cause serotonin toxicity. So the first thing is you have to understand your pharmacology. And many, many reports of serotonin toxicity, supposedly, serotonin syndrome, serotonin toxicity, uh, have been about drugs which quite clearly have no effects of elevating serotonin whatsoever. Nefazid excuse me, nefazidone would have to be a good example of that, uh, but you can read the extensive things I've written about this to understand it. But the point is, it has to be a drug which has clearly established serotonin elevating effects. And in this day and age, of course, the neuropharmacology that demonstrates the serotonin elevating effects of various drugs is generally pretty clear. There isn't usually much doubt about it. There is sometimes, but not usually and not much. Those are essential things to understand about serotonin toxicity and really just understanding those things will help you to see why a great majority of case reports 
are essentially not worth the paper they're written on. In fact, they're worse than that. They misdirect and mislead people. But let's not dwell on that too much. Let's try and be positive. Okay, so it's a dose-related phenomenon. And the extent to which particular kinds of drugs acting via discrete mechanisms can elevate serotonin is limited and generally fairly well known. Uh, if you want to look at the details uh, where I've laid all this out in considerable detail, look at my paper in Biological Psychiatry. Obviously it's in the uh, list of my publications, whether you look at Google Scholar or on my website or whatever, but the Biological Psychiatry paper. Um, and what that shows very clearly, both in test tube assays, computer in silico modelling, animal experiments, human studies, etc., etc., is that, for instance, take serotonin reuptake inhibitors, so-called SSRIs, selective or specific serotonin reuptake inhibitors. They act via one mechanism, which is blocking the reuptake of serotonin into the presynaptic neuron. And blocking that can only elevate serotonin by a certain degree. It doesn't just go up and up and up until it reaches the stratosphere. And that's clearly demonstrated, for instance, by the wonderful work of Professor Ian White and his various colleagues over the years uh, at the uh, Newcastle in Australia. And they've been keeping a prospective database of all of the overdoses and the cases admitted via their toxicology service to hospital with poisonings of all sorts, including strychnine. Uh, and they've documented very carefully the symptoms that people exhibit with these various different drugs. And it's from that massive prospective database, which I think has now got oh, thousands of cases of serotonin toxicity caused by SSRIs alone documented in it. So it's very, very, very reliable data. Uh, you'll go a long way in medical science before you find better quality data in such huge quantities as that. What they've demonstrated is that no one who's taken an overdose of an SSRI develops life-threatening serotonin toxicity. The percentage of them that finish up in the intensive care unit as opposed to just a medical ward is incredibly small. I can't remember the exact figures off the top of my head, but it's minuscule. And none of them, and I checked with Ian White about this not very long ago, 12 months ago, none of them have developed a temperature of more than 38.5 centigrade. Right? Now, hyperthermia, not hyperpyrexia. Pyrexia and hyperthermia are different. Pyrexia is due to infection and the temperature control mechanisms in the body are competent. Hyperthermia, sorry, incompetent. Hyperthermia is where temperature rises to the extent of overwhelming the body's ability to control temperature.
structure. So they're not quite the same thing. So let's try and be precise and call it hyperthermia. Hypothermia doesn't really start damaging the body until you get pretty close to 40 degrees. The data I reviewed in my paper comparing, or not comparing, no, I did a review of neuroleptic malignant syndrome because so frequently people say that neuroleptic malignant syndrome and serotonin syndrome are nearly identical. Um, Professor White and I think that that's a very, a very mistaken view. Uh, they're quite different. In fact, I think Professor White is on record as saying they're different as chalk and cheese, and I would certainly agree with that. Now, let's not jump the gun here. Whilst we say they're different as chalk and cheese, obviously we're talking about the generally typical presentation where you've got a patient without other significant comorbid medical or pharmacological issues, etc., etc., in medicine, there are so many variables that almost any condition or diagnosis, however typical and characteristic, can on occasions be confused with other things that any clinician or competent doctor would take as read. But having said that, it's very specific and very recognisable. Uh, so you could diagnose it from the door at the end of the ward sometimes without any other information. It's so unusual and so typical. So the important concept is that there are different degrees of serotonin elevation in the brain produced by drugs with different mechanisms of action. I just mentioned the SSRIs. The two other mechanisms that are relevant are inhibition of monoamine oxidase and the release from the presynaptic vesicles of the stores of neurotransmitter uh, produced classically by the drug ecstasy, MDMA. So those are the three mechanisms. Sudden release of floods of the neurotransmitter from the stores by so-called releases like ecstasy and in fact, when I say like ecstasy, off the top of my head, I don't think there's any other drug that anyone's likely to encounter that causes massive release of serotonin except ecstasy. Uh, there may be one or two other molecules that people have synthesized and taken for recreational purposes that uh, do do that, but I don't think I know about them at the moment. So it's basically ecstasy. Uh, the monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Uh, really, the oscillogeline, oh gosh, I suppose an overdose of oscillogeline might produce a similar effect, but there are so few cases on record because it's really only used for Parkinson's and you can't really overdose on a oscillogeline patch. Um, that, that doesn't really come into it. Uh, and then the only other drug is meclobamide the uh, reversible selective drug that blocks MAOA that was produced well, back in the early late 70s, early 80s and marketed in Europe but never made it to America. Um, probably, well, in my view, quite rightly, it's a very weak antidepressant. Uh, it 
does elevate serotonin a tiny bit, but if you look at that uh, table in the paper I referred to earlier with the diagrams in it, even an overdose of meclobamide by itself, just meclobamide, nothing else, does not cause any symptoms of serotonin toxicity. So it doesn't have symptoms of serotonin toxicity in normal use, i.e. it doesn't have serotonergic side effects, if you like. I hate that word, serotonergic, because it's misused. It means relating to serotonin. It doesn't necessarily mean elevating. It could mean decreasing. So I try to say serotonin elevating, not serotonergic. Um, but uh, so, so it doesn't cause uh, serotonin-related side effects in normal usage. It doesn't cause them in overdose. It will, in fact, cause serotonin toxicity if it's mixed with large doses of SSRIs. So, sorry, with normal doses of SSRIs and an overdose of meclobamide. Uh, so there are a number of cases where people have taken large doses of meclobamide uh, and an SSRI and got quite severe serotonin toxicity. And also it would cause serotonin toxicity if you mixed it with MDMA. Uh, so... If you look at the serotonin toxicity triangle, I made that to illustrate the relationship between these various drugs and the toxidrome of serotonin toxicity. Because, as I said a moment ago, those are really the only three mechanisms that can significantly elevate serotonin. Um, so, if you look at that diagram, uh, at, the, at the bottom is the relationship between mixing uh, Fingmajig and what's it? <laughs> um, uh, a, a, an SRI and uh, a releaser. Uh, I think MLI's at the top, I have a little diagram in front of me at the moment. But the point that that illustrates is that in fact a serotonin reuptake inhibitor blocks the effect of ecstasy. Now this is useful to understand because it's just the same mechanism as the relationship between tyramine and the tricyclic antidepressants. Ecstasy has to get into the presynaptic serotonin neuron in order to release serotonin from the vesicles. And in order to do that, it utilizes the active energy-consuming mechanism of the CERT, the serotonin transporter. So if you block that, which is what SSRIs do, then it can't get in it can't release massive amounts of serotonin and it can't cause problems. So in actual fact, taking a serotonin reuptake inhibitor and then taking ecstasy, that attenuates or even completely blocks, if the dose is fully adequate, the effect of ecstasy. I'm sure everybody in the drug-taking community knows that. Uh, I'm sure those familiar with websites that discuss these things will tell me that it's a well-recognized phenomenon. But, and I think this is a well-recognised phenomenon too, and I've seen several tragic cases over the years of this, uh, if you combine uh, ecstasy with uh, an MAOI like meclobamide, which one or two people sadly tried to do, that's extremely dangerous, and there have been uh, one or two very sad incidents of severe effects and deaths from that. Uh, in clinical practice, the main combination that's potentially dangerous, of course, is 
the ordinary MAOIs with an SSRI. Uh, so the old-fashioned uh, mixed tranalcyprimine, phenylzine and isocarboxazid mixed with an SSRI. That's really a very dangerous combination. And if you're on a fully effective dose of a monoamoxase inhibitor, even one dose of a potent serotonin reuptake inhibitor can kill you. Yeah, stop and think about that a minute. Uh, and there have been one or two examples. I mean, one of the most tragic ones I remember was, perhaps I better not give too many details for fear of offending people, but there was a case reported from a European teaching hospital. I can't remember the fine details now, but it was imipramine, I think, was the drug in question. And I believe it was given mistakenly to the wrong patient and nobody realised how dangerous it was. And the patient developed serotonin toxicity and died in a teaching hospital. And it all happened so quickly that nobody realised what was going on and nobody did the right thing. And of course it was doubly tragic because if they'd known what they'd done, they could have treated it and stopped it with almost 100% reliability. So there you are. It's potentially a very, very serious and fatal condition. So, back to this issue of it's a dose-related phenomenon. Now, of course, because it's an interaction, the term dose-related has to be taken with an extra pinch of salt because it's not just the dose of one drug, it's the net result of the interaction between two drugs. But it's dose-related in the sense that it's related to the degree of elevation of intrasynaptic serotonin. I must talk just a little bit about that because those of you who know my website will be aware that I've made some very frank and severe criticisms of a paper that was published from a very reputable uh, London teaching hospital reviewing cases of serotonin uh, case reports, case reports of supposed serotonin syndrome, which was full of severe misunderstandings and misconceptions, disastrous misconceptions about serotonin toxicity. And the people who wrote this paper came out with some extraordinary notion that, that, that you know, it was really diagnosing serotonin toxicity with something like Professor White's Hunter criteria was a bit like doing a rating scale for depression. It was all very subjective and it was all based on the supposition it was related to, you know, elevated serotonin, uh, as if that wasn't proven very clearly and conclusively. Uh, and as a result, they talked a lot of... It's difficult to call it anything other than nonsense in, in, the, in the paper. I think... I think scientists, when they see scientific work that's nonsense, have to call it nonsense. It's no good beating around the bush and pretending it's, you know, not nonsense. It's nonsense. End of story. Um, so, uh, it, yes, what I was going to say, it, it, it's very, very important to understand 
that experimental work with animals, going right back to the 1960s. I mean, one of the great ironies of that paper coming from that London teaching hospital is some of the earliest and most famous work on uh, illuminating the interactions between the old tricyclic antidepressants and MAOIs was done from that very establishment. They've forgotten their own history, never mind the rest of the history. But there you are, that's what happens. People don't learn from history. That's why there are so many quotations describing how people don't learn from history. History far from depending on retentiveness is da 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 da. What's that Santayana quotation? I'm sure some clever person can remember it. Far from consisting in change depends on retentiveness. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That's roughly right, I think. Anyway, so... Uh, that... What was the point I was making? That uh, degree of severity and specificity in the old studies... Ah, I've lost track of what I was saying. I do that sometimes. Um, I'd like to be able to play these things back. Heidi, I think in due course we need to find another programme. This is 20 minutes and seems to be going without fault, so maybe that indicates it's something to do with the buffering uh, and everything, and that because I had so many programmes open, the poor thing just couldn't cope. Because I did have about 10 different programmes open, and a lot of them require quite a lot of... RAM, buffer, whatever, whatever you call it. Yes, it would be useful to have a program that A, displayed the running time at the bottom all the time rather than me having to keep... It, it disappears and I have to sort of click to make it appear again. And B, that's got a pause feature on it, which this doesn't seem to have. That's hopeless. Um, yeah, so perhaps a different program. I, I really am very surprised. Perhaps it has, and I just haven't found it, but we'll talk about that later. So, uh, yes, okay. So this idea that, you know, it's not really demonstrated that serotonin toxicity is related to actual elevated serotonin, it, it just demonstrates a complete lack of knowledge uh, about the basic research and neuropharmacology and everything. So that there's been extensive animal work going right back to the 1960s, uh, and I've reviewed it in one or two of my papers, uh, demonstrating that it's related to intrasynaptic serotonin. And of course, if you block the postsynaptic 5-HT2A receptors, you uh, attenuate or even abolish uh, all of the uh, major, potentially uh, life-threatening manifestations of the condition. Toxidrome. Uh, so anybody who thinks that it's not properly established that this is a very specific syndrome directly related to the potency of drugs that elevate intrasynaptic serotonin simply doesn't know what they're talking about. End of study. End of story. Go home. Bye bye. Right. So that's the basic science that establishes the reality of the syndrome. Uh, 
I think that covers a great deal of what it's really important to understand about serotonin toxicity. Uh, and I'll pause for a moment there because what I'll move on to talking about next uh, is in reality what actual drugs do we have to worry about. Okay, so for clinicians what all this means is that you can be very confident about what's going on and what's safe and what isn't safe in terms of what drugs you can and can't give in combination with MAOIs. Because it's really all about MAOIs. There aren't any other combinations that you're going to encounter as a clinician which are going to cause serious problems. Uh, there's an exception that proves every rule, of course. Uh, and just in case there are people who don't understand that, the expression the exception proves the rule is misunderstood, I think. In that context, what proves means is tests. It's a bit like proof spirit in whiskey, but I won't go on about that. The exception that tests the rule. But for 99.99% of practical purposes, the only thing you'll ever encounter is a mixture of an MAOI with a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So drugs that are not significantly potent serotonin reuptake inhibitors cannot cause serotonin toxicity. End of story. Let's use the tricyclic antidepressants as a model of the correctness of that statement. And again, some people will be aware that I've written extensively on this subject. And indeed, I've used this toxicology model to uh, integrate, if you like, the findings about tricyclic antidepressants and their side effects and therapeutic efficacy uh, in relation to this. So for instance, if you look, you might for this data have to go to the review paper I wrote about the tricyclic antidepressants in the uh, British Journal of Pharmacology in 2006, a while ago now. It's freely available from their website and lots of other places. It's probably on my ResearchGate thing as well, I expect, but whatever. There's a table in there uh, of the human cloned receptor affinity data for all of those drugs and a few other similar drugs as comparators uh, in order to put all this in perspective. And as far as the tricyclic antidepressants are concerned, the most potent serotonin reuptake inhibitor by far and more potent than almost all of the supposed selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors is clomipramine. It's got a, a KI of a fraction of one, you know, 0.2 or something, 0.2 its, its KI is at the serotonin transporter. Most of the uh, SSRIs are more like between 1 and 10. Obviously it depends on dose and transport into the brain and all sorts of things. So you can't necessarily transpose those KIs directly to, you know, com compare different drugs. But you can with tricyclics, and that was partly the pur purpose of my papers, to examine whether all that data held together and indicated that they probably all got to their effector site at about the same concentration, and they seem to. 
The next most potent serotonin reuptake inhibitor is imipramine, and then all the others are rather less potent. And in fact, most of them have no significant potency whatsoever. So I decided to use that data to address the question, how potent, how low does the KI have to be before drugs actually have side effects, clinical effects, and toxic effects if you mix them with MAOIs? And I think that's a very instructive model to look at. So if you compare imipramine and clomipramine, Generally speaking, I think people would agree that clomipramine is the only drug that has potent uh, anti-OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorder effects. Imipramine might have a mild effect, but it's nowhere near as effective as clomipramine. And amitriptyline and the other drugs have no significant effect at all. So there's a model of the clinical effect on a disease which is thought to be uh, dependent on alteration of serotonin in a major way. Narcolepsy is the same, by the way, uh, but let's not get onto narcolepsy just at the moment. But clomipramine is very effective for narcolepsy, but the other tricyclics aren't. So there are several other examples of, of serotonin-related pathological states, not just OCD. Then you can look at side effects that are characteristic of these drugs when you give them in clinical doses. Uh, and of course the side effects of clomipramine are markedly more serotonin-related like the inhibition of orgasm in both females and males, than are imipramine and the other drugs. Likewise, if you take an overdose just of tricyclics, the only one that really causes symptoms related to serotonin toxicity in overdose is clomipramine. The others don't, and certainly drugs like amitriptyline don't. Uh, and if you look at Professor White's extensive series, it shows that. Uh, again, clomipramine doesn't cause really severe serotonin toxicity, but it does cause serotonin toxicity to an extent. Uh, but of course, generally speaking, in overdoses, the other tricyclic effects are, are rather more important. Okay, so all of those things go hand in hand, and the correspondence between the potency of the serotonin transporter in those human cloned receptor in, in vitro studies is absolutely excellent. What's, so that's the toxicology, the interactions, and, and yes, so the most important thing from a clinical point of view, how does that translate into them causing serotonin toxicity if you mix them with an MAOI? Well, that's also crystal clear. Clomipramine is absolutely potentially fatal. One dose of clomipramine and you know people can be dead in six hours uh, if they're already on an effective dose of an MAOI. So it's extremely dangerous. Imipramine is absolutely on the cusp. Uh, in other words, if the, if the uh, blood level's high, if somebody's a slow metabolizer, or if the dose itself is very, very high, or if somebody takes an overdose in the presence of an MAOI, then it's powerful enough to cause serotonin toxicity and kill the people. But in everyday practice, excuse me, if you just gave a dose of imipramine of 50 milligrams or perhaps 100 milligrams uh, to a patient who was on already on an MAOI, nine times out of ten, you'd probably get away with it. That is precisely why, of course, 
in the early work, lots of people did that and got confused and didn't understand the difference between a tyramine pressor response and serotonin toxicity and other forms of toxicity and whatever, because they just didn't understand well enough the relative potency and the mechanism of action of all of these drugs. So that's a modern resynthesis, if you like, of how all of that works and why it works. And uh, there are still quite a lot of standard texts that need correcting in this respect. Indeed, when I wrote the editorial for Stephen Stahl's journal uh, just over a year ago, Much Ado About Nothing, I thought I'd be a little provocative. Those who know me will will know that I have a tendency to be a little provocative sometimes. Um, but really, it's, it, it's pretty close to much ado about nothing. Uh, and uh, in there, I made this point about the potential danger of imipramine. Uh, and a couple of the referees, because the editorial was refereed, said, oh, but that's safe, isn't it? Uh, and I had to add a few lines and one or two references to remind them that, uh, no, it's not safe. Not unless you're very brave and you've got good medical insurance. Um, but no, it, it's definitely not safe. Uh, so, uh, that, I think, is a lovely exercise in neuropharmacology and drug interaction, which elucidates very clearly a very important point about one of the most serious drug interactions that can occur with psychotropic drugs. End of story. Um, what should we finish up by talking about? It's time to finish up. I've been going on for long enough. Um, so back to the key question, what drugs can you mix with MAOIs? And essentially, the answer is anything as long as it's not a significant serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Obviously, there is some doubt about one or two other odd drugs that are serotonin reuptake inhibitors or not, or whatever, like Zeprazidone. Uh, Michael Gitlin in America produced the first report of that. Guess who refereed it? I, I don't know. Who was it? Um, excellent report and showed with just with a, a one in a thousand case report that was actually worth writing because it showed quite clearly a typical case of classic serotonin toxicity of a severe degree when they gave a patient on MAIs, uh, Zeprazidone, when it first came out some years ago, uh, thereby proving that whatever it's potency is of the serotonin transporter, uh, it's enough in clinical doses to precipitate ST. I don't think any of the other atypical neuroleptics are sufficiently potent to do that, but maybe one of these, uh, some of them are being produced with all sorts of funny effects, so you need to keep an eye on what the uh, data is regarding their potency as serotonin reuptake inhibitors and be a little bit careful perhaps. Uh, then there are the narcotic analgesics. Most of them are safe, but Meperidine, um, a lot of people call it now, what we used to call it pethidine. Um, rotten drug anyway, nobody should use it. Uh, but that's uh, potentially a problem because it's a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So it's tramadol, another rotten drug in my opinion. Uh, and uh, methadone, 
but look at the paper I wrote. Uh, the British Journal of Anesthesia, that paper was in actually, I think. Uh, MAOIs and Narcotic Analgesics, I think it was called. It's in my list of references, of course. So one or two of the narcotic analgesics, but most of them are safe, like codeine, oxycodone, morphine. Fentanyl's almost certainly safe, although there have been a couple of possible dubious reports. It's obvious that it's been given thousands of times in combination uh, with different drugs and not caused a problem, so I wouldn't worry about it unless it's being used in absolutely massive doses, like continuous high-dose infusion in the intensive care unit or something. I want to be a tiny bit careful. But. So, yes, so if you go to the table, I'm sure I've published in several different places, of the uh, drugs that interact with MAOIs, that because they're serotonin reuptake inhibitors, you'll see that all summarised. Um, and I think when you look at that, you'll realise that most of the tables published in most sources have got a whole lot of, I was about to say, nonsense. It is. It's nonsense. I'm sorry. I have to say it. Uh, very misinformed comment. Uh, the classic example of that is nifazidone and trazodone, uh, both almost identical drugs that are 5-HT2A antagonists. They have no significant serotonin reuptake potency whatsoever, and they're perfectly safe with MAOIs. Uh, and yet, of course, there are multiple papers claiming to report serotonin toxicity with that combination. Uh, and if you look at those papers, you can see that the people who are reporting it clearly don't understand the sort of serotonin toxidrome. Um, so uh, just bear in mind that, sadly, a great many of the tables published, even up till now, I saw a table published by somebody only months ago, that was full of mistakes. And in fact, even the respected Journal of Clinical Psychopharmacology, uh, Greenblatt and Shader, they published a, a what do you call it, a, an editorial only months ago, late, late 2018, about uh, uh, tryptans and serotonin toxicity using this ridiculous data from the FDA. Do they call it FAERS or something? F-A-E-R-S. I can't remember what that stands for. But it's very, very poor quality data. And it just can't be used for sensible work. Uh, and so lots of people have claimed that, you know, that anti-migraine drugs cause serotonin toxicity. I would be quite confident in standing up in court and saying that's absolutely without foundation. So, caveat lector. Beware of what you read. All right. Well, I hope you found this talk informative. And don't forget that uh, it's best absorbed in the context of one or two of those papers that I've referred to during the talk. That's it for now. Goodbye. If you have found this podcast useful and it's a good way for you to get information about the sorts of things that are on my website, then uh, do sign up so that we can automatically send you notifications of the new podcasts.